Hello, and welcome to History Respawned. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode covers Mafia 3, developed by Hangar 13 and published by 2K Games. Mafia 3 is set in a fictionalized version of New Orleans, called New Bordeaux, in 1968. The game follows the story of Lincoln Clay, a biracial Vietnam War veteran who is seeking revenge on the local Italian mafia. While the game's characters and place names are invented, much of the context for Mafia 3's main story draws directly from the historical record. In order to analyze this game's use of history, I invited Professor Leonard Moore from the University of Texas at Austin onto the show. Professor Moore is an expert on modern African American history, especially black urban history. He is also the author of Black Rage in New Orleans, Police Brutality and African American Activism from World War II to Hurricane Katrina. Professor Moore was an excellent guest, filled with insight on the time period and the setting. We had a great conversation. Unfortunately, after we finished this conversation, my recording program, called Hindenburg, crashed and completely wiped the recorded audio. Rather than totally abandon the episode, I've decided to record a solo episode while cribbing from Professor Moore's book on New Orleans, as well as his talking points during our conversation. I was interested in covering Mafia 3 for History Respawned, not only because it dealt with the historical setting, but also because the developers advertised the game as being historically realistic regarding race relations. Players encounter racial slurs, segregated spaces, and racially motivated violence. It's rare for any video game to attempt to tackle race head-on, and it's unheard of for an open-world action game in the mold of Grand Theft Auto. Having taught race relations in America in the past, I was especially intrigued that Mafia 3 is set in a fictionalized version of New Orleans. Historically, New Orleans was one of the few major American cities in the South with a large African-American population that did not witness large-scale protests or riots during the Civil Rights era. I had spent a lot of time reading and lecturing on protests in Birmingham, Montgomery, and Atlanta, but never considered looking at New Orleans for this type of history. This is why I found Professor Moore's book on New Orleans so instructive. It works to overcome the perception of New Orleans as the Big Easy with regard to race relations by providing the long history of civil rights in the city before Hurricane Katrina. In his book, Black Rage in New Orleans, Professor Moore centers on the confrontation between the New Orleans Police Department and the city's black community during the civil rights era. Professor Moore describes how the police in New Orleans attempted to maintain the racial order of the city during the post-war era. The police did this through a number of different tactics, including homicide, unlawful arrest, assault, threatening language, racial slurs, and sexual exploitation. Historically, New Orleans is known for a very low level of residential segregation because most neighborhoods feature black and whites living in the same neighborhood. Yet at the same time, the social boundaries between these two groups were strictly enforced by the police. And to a large extent, you see this well represented in New Bordeaux. Players in the game will encounter mixed-race neighborhoods, but these neighborhoods are policed differently depending on which race makes up the majority of the population. So for instance, in the majority black neighborhood called The Hollow, players encounter very little police presence. And if the player commits a crime in The Hollow, it's very common for the police to take a while to show up. Conversely, if the player commits a crime in the white suburbs or in the game stand-in for the French Quarter, 
they are more likely to see an immediate police response. Given the importance of the New Orleans police to maintaining racial boundaries and segregation during the Civil Rights era, Professor Moore's books describes how the black community went about resisting the police's rule over the city. One of the primary ways the black community attempted to deal with this problem was by trying to encourage the city to hire black police officers. Much of this effort in trying to hire black police officers was led by local church leaders, and this tactic is actually pretty well represented in Mafia 3. One of Lincoln Clay's primary allies is Father James, a Catholic priest and local community leader. During the course of the game, we learn that Father James had once been arrested by the New Bordeaux police as he attempted to protest for the inclusion of black police officers on the force. And when I talked to Professor Moore about this, he felt as though somebody on the development team must have read his book. Carrying on with the topic of historic racism and racial segregation, Mafia 3 also includes a stand-in for the Ku Klux Klan called the Southern Union, which operates in the suburbs of Mafia 3's version of New Orleans. In Professor Moore's book, he discusses how the Klan never really established much of a presence in New Orleans itself. There were a couple of reasons for this. Throughout most of the 19th and 20th centuries, the Klan's activities were usually relegated to rural areas. This was done so that the Klan's activities would remain secret, but also so that it would avoid contact with local authorities in major metropolitan areas. In New Orleans, there was very little need for the Klan because it was the police department that did most of the work of maintaining segregation and racial division. Additionally, the KKK's anti-Catholic message also didn't go over well in a majority Catholic city of New Orleans. One of the things that immediately struck me while playing Mafia 3 was Lincoln Clay's status as a Vietnam War veteran. To the extent that his war service is mentioned, Lincoln seems to have fond memories of his time in the Army, and he also continues friendships with those he served with, including a white CIA agent named John Donovan. Because of Lincoln's background and context, his story immediately reminded me of Mark Essex, the so-called Howard Johnson sniper. Professor Moore wrote extensively about Mark Essex in his book Black Rage. Essex was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1949. In 1969, he joined the United States Navy as a dental technician. Essex joined the Navy because he believed it was the least racist out of all of the service departments. Unfortunately for Essex, he experienced extreme racism during his time in the United States Navy. As a result of the racism he experienced in the Navy, Essex began to pursue an association with the Black Panther Party in San Diego. Eventually, Essex made his way to New Orleans after receiving his discharge from the Navy. While in New Orleans, Essex became increasingly upset with what he saw as the police department's racism and increasing brutality against the black population in the city. In particular, he was extremely upset over the deaths of two black students at Southern University a few months before his killing spree. Essex decided at the end of 1972 to take it upon himself to attack the New Orleans Police Department and attempt to kill as many white officers as he could. Essex's attacks on the police began on New Year's Eve 1972, when he shot two police officers outside of the central lockup. Essex continued his attacks on January 7, 1973, where he assaulted the Howard Johnson's Hotel in downtown New Orleans. 
Inside the hotel, Essex killed two guests and the hotel's assistant manager, while also setting a number of fires, first on the 8th floor and then another on the 17th floor. The purpose of the fires wasn't to destroy the building, but instead to attract police and firefighters to the scene. Once police and firefighters arrived, Essex opened fire on them from the roof of the hotel. The shootout between Essex and police officers carried on throughout the afternoon and into the evening. During this time, local radio announcers encouraged members of the audience to take up their rifles and go to the Howard Johnsons to help in the assault on Mark Essex. Despite having hundreds of civilians and police officers firing at him from the ground, Essex was only brought down after receiving fire from a sniper riding in an armored marine helicopter. By the end of the shootout, Essex had killed a total of nine people, including five police officers. I share the story of Mark Essex not to glorify his actions, but instead to highlight the context of racism in New Orleans, the South, and in the American Armed Forces at this time. Prior to his time in the military, Essex was considered to be a mild-mannered and non-violent individual, but his experience in the American military and in the city of New Orleans led him on the path to becoming a mass murderer. Confronted with his story, the racism and segregation players experience in Mafia 3 is only a small token of the actual racism and racial violence experienced by African Americans at this time. Moreover, I want players to be aware that Lincoln Clay's positive experience in the U.S. military with regard to race relations was not a common experience for real veterans of color. Similarly, given a recent attacks by black military veterans against police in Dallas and Baton Rouge, we shouldn't imagine that these issues are confined to history alone. Professor Moore writes in Black Rage that the Essex shootings led to a buildup of the New Orleans Police Department as well as longer jail terms and prison sentences for black offenders. There is also some sense of this collateral damage of vigilantism in Mafia 3. In one instance, Father James reprimands Lincoln Clay for his violent work, in particular blaming him for the deaths of two young black teenagers in New Bordeaux. Mafia 3 includes a pirate radio station run by Charles Laveau, a one-time bartender turned black nationalist. Although the game never states this directly, the character is essentially a stand-in for the Black Panther Party. This month saw the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party, and Leonard Moore wrote extensively about the history of the BPP in New Orleans for his book Black Rage. Founded in Oakland, California in 1966, the Black Panther Party opened a chapter in New Orleans in 1970. The original goal of the BPP was to encourage the black population toward armed self-defense against police brutality. The most common depiction of the Black Panther Party in popular culture sees them wearing all black, armed with assault rifles, and wearing military berets. Yet the Black Panther Party was much more than just an armed militant group. Professor Moore writes about their introduction to New Orleans in 1970, stating that while they were focused on armed self-defense against the New Orleans police, the Black Panther Party was also involved in food drives and breakfast programs for poor black communities. The assumption of the police was that the Black Panther's success in New Orleans was the result of outside agitators and outside money. Yet it's unlikely that the organization would have seen any success in New Orleans without the support of the local community. And in that regard, the food drives and the breakfast programs went a long way. 
This assumption that black militantism was the result of outside agitation rather than internal support is also something that you see in Mafia 3. The police commissioner of New Bordeaux is often heard on the in-game radio, claiming that the city of New Bordeaux doesn't have a color problem, but it has a black power problem, and that this black power problem is the result of outside agitation. In real life, the New Orleans Police Department also focused on outsider members. The NOPD attempted to catch suspected Black Panther members with any sort of wrongdoing, a traffic violation, a citation for loitering, or perhaps a possession of a firearm without a license. In addition to this hounding and profiling of BPP members, the New Orleans Police Department was also suspected of being involved in the destruction of the BPP headquarters in Louisiana in 1971. So while Mafia 3 may place the Black Panther Party in New Bordeaux a bit earlier than they arrived in New Orleans, the game nevertheless successfully gives an accurate depiction of some of the rhetoric between the Black Panther Party and the police department in New Orleans during this time period. One of the other things that Mafia 3 does surprisingly well is draw connections between the civil rights movement in America and the Cold War. The game's white characters, especially the police, declare the civil rights movement to be a Soviet plot. While many of the black characters in Mafia 3 see the Cold War as a distraction from bigger problems at home. Impressively, the game makes more than just simple connections between Vietnam and the American civil rights movement. In one specific instance, Remy Duval, the host of a talk show on the Native Sun radio station within Mafia 3, goes on an extended comparison between the Prague Spring and the fight for segregationist rights in the South. I asked Professor Moore about this relationship between the Cold War and the civil rights movement, and he stated that it was often common for civil rights leaders to make use of the Cold War in their push for reform. This was particularly the case as the Vietnam War began to escalate during the late 1960s. Civil rights leaders such as Martin Luther King and others argued that it was impossible for the United States to fight for freedom and democracy abroad when they denied freedom and democracy at home. This relation of the Cold War to the Civil Rights Movement also goes beyond the major characters in the game. For instance, if you're simply walking on the street, it's not uncommon to hear NPCs discussing the Tet Offensive, as well as the progress of the protest movements, either for civil rights or for an end of the war in Vietnam. These sorts of historical touches elevate Mafia 3 from being a simple knockoff of Grand Theft Auto and make it into an instructive facsimile of the American South in the 1960s. That does it for this episode of History Respond. I want to thank Professor Leonard Moore for lending his knowledge to this episode, and I encourage viewers to read his book, Black Rage in New Orleans, if they want to learn more about these topics. If you enjoyed this episode of History Respond, and are interested in supporting the show, please consider visiting our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. 